one of the ideas that I really want to be true of us is this, this idea of incarnational living. Um, the incarnation, it's the, this word that we use to talk about this very central idea of Christianity that God has become flesh and lived among us in the person of Jesus Christ. We're actually going to do a series through the book of Colossians after this Life in Babylon series, and we're going to talk deeply about all that that means, this idea of incarnation. But Jesus calls us to live out our lives in an incarnational way as his ambassadors, as his disciples, as he lived among us, as he lived and uh, lived out his holiness and lived out his mission in this world, that so are we to do the same. We are to live incarnationally, to live as his ambassadors. That's exactly what Colin was talking about, uh, that each of us as followers of Christ, um, following him faithfully, living as he would live, live in different neighborhoods and different workplaces and go to different schools and have different workout groups and, and whatever else it is. And, and through that, God is actually manifesting himself. God is displaying himself. God is, is showing the world the person of Christ in the way that we live incarnationally, or you could say a little more pointedly, that we scatter incarnationally. That's one of the ideas that we talk about a lot here is this idea of gathering. What we're doing now is the body of Christ, is the church of Christ, but then the church is going to scatter to go to different neighborhoods and workplaces and uh, workout groups, as I, as I just mentioned. And, and as we scatter, to scatter faithfully as ambassadors to Jesus, as, as representatives of Jesus, to live the kind of life that Jesus would live if he were us. Now, the question we've been asking in this whole Life of Babylon series is how do you do that, right? And it particularly, how do you do that in a deeply secular age, in an age that doesn't recognize uh, the claims of Jesus? Kind of like Colin said in, in his video, his neighbors are starting to believe that the things that Jesus said about himself were true. But what, how do we live the life of Christ? How do we live out the, the Christian faith in a world that, that does not recognize the authority of God, and, and maybe certainly doesn't have a personal relationship with him. Now, the good news is that this is not the first time that Christians have found themselves in an age where a lot of the people around them don't understand their belief system, don't understand the God that they serve, don't understand what it means to follow in obedience after the Lord. In fact, this has kind of been true of Christians throughout our history and even before Jesus came, been true of the people of God. And, and so that's what we've been doing. We've been looking at these places in scripture where we see this idea of exile, where the people of God were taken away from their homeland, away from what was comfortable to them, and were put in an uncomfortable place. We're put in a place where they were often disagreed with. We looked at Joseph a few weeks ago, if you remember that, and, and he, of course, was taken into exile all by himself into Egypt, this pagan place, this place that was far away from the things of God. And he followed the Lord and he honored God and he was very useful in that place. And actually God used his faithfulness and his youthfulness, usefulness in that place to do an amazing work in Egypt. Last week, if you were here, we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And even though they were faced with this incredible threat of being thrown in a furnace, of being thrown in fire, they were faithful to God. They trusted God. They trusted the care of God. And God used that. And he worked through their lives in an amazing way among Nebuchadnezzar and among the people of Babylon. Today, I want to look at what I think is one of the more peculiar books of the Bible, the book of Esther. 
we're actually going to look at kind of the whole book today. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a strange sermon. I don't, I don't usually preach this way, but we're going to look at, you know, if you're like, I want to learn one book of the Bible, you're kind of going to learn one book of the Bible today, the book of Esther. And, and Esther tells us this story of how the people of God live in exile. I think really the, the purpose of the book is it tells us how the people of God are to live in exile. And it also tells us about how God takes care of his people and how God takes care of his people in really this godless society. So we're gonna just look at one verse. Go ahead and turn to Esther because there's a couple places that I want you to look at with me. Uh, but just flip to the end just to kind of center our hearts on the word of God. Let's look at Esther 10 and I just want to read verse three to you as we just ready ourselves to think about God's word together. Esther 10, three, hear the word of the Lord. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews. He was popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Esther is about some events that take place about 100 years after the Jewish people were taken into Babylon. So if you remember last week, we talked about this Babylonian exile. The Jews, of course, lived in the land that God had promised them, the land of Canaan. Uh, there was one group that went away in exile in 722 BC, another group that went away in exile, this Babylonian exile in 586 BC. This is about 100 years after that. Now, they were in exile for about... 70 years until the first wave went back. So if you remember, we looked at this last week when we looked at the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar was reigning over the Babylonians. But remember his dream, if you were here last week, I talked about his dream that there would be other kingdoms that would come and displace him. And that's what happened. The Medes and the Persians, King Darius and King Cyrus came and displaced uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Cyrus, when he came into power, he allowed some groups of the Jewish people to return to the promised land, to their homeland. If you were here a few years ago, we did a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, and we talked about Nehemiah going back and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And if you've ever read the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra, it's the same time period. The, the people of God are going back to rebuild the temple. They're going back away from this Persian or during this Persian captivity, but they're going back to their homeland. Now, that happened to many of the Jewish people, but many of them stayed in exile. And, and, and the events of Esther take place in a city called Susa, which is kind of the capital city of the Persian world. So Cyrus, he had reigned, but Cyrus is, is now gone on. Uh, he's, he's dead. And his son, Xerxes, now the if you, if you read in the book of Esther, he's referred to as Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name for the Greek name Xerxes. So Greek, Xerxes, Hebrew, Ahasuerus. I'm going, probably in your Bible, it refers to him as Ahasuerus. I'm just gonna refer to him as Xerxes. That's just easier for me to say. So I'm going to be saying his name a lot today. So Xerxes and Ahasuerus are the same person. So that's kind of the context, if you will. And, and what happens in this book, and this is actually very important, the, the Jewish holiday of Purim is established. Now, if you have any Jewish friends, they, they, Jewish, friends Jewish friends still celebrate this holiday to this day. It's a very important holiday, and we're going to talk about its significance uh, here as we go on. 
So Xerxes, now there's four main characters in the book of Esther. And, and to really understand the book, you kind of have to understand these four main characters. There's of course the title character, Esther, who is a, an orphan. She's a Jewish woman who is an orphan. She's raised by her uncle Mordecai, who we're gonna talk about here in just a little bit. She actually becomes the queen of the Persian people. She, she marries Xerxes, she becomes the queen of Persia. The next character Kind of the other kind of main character that we already mentioned here is Mordecai. Mordecai has an incredibly interesting role. It's interesting, Mordecai by the end, as we just read in chapter 10, Mordecai becomes the second in command. He becomes kind of the second most powerful person in all of Persian. He's a Jewish man. What's interesting about that, if you've kind of been following in this uh, little series, Joseph in a foreign context while he was in exile became second in command in Egypt. If you remember last week, we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, but Daniel, their buddy, he became second in command among the Babylonians. And now here's Mordecai, same kind of thing. These Jewish people are gaining trust and favor. And of course, we would say that God is working through them even while they're in exile. The other character that's very important is Haman. Now, Haman is this kind of conniving advisor slash servant to King Xerxes. He has a very big role in this. We're going to learn a little bit about Haman as we go on. And then, of course, King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. Now, if you've read the book of Esther, I mean, basically, Xerxes is pretty much drunk the entire book. He's just this like party guy that just wants to party and, you know, chase after beautiful women. That's basically how the book describes him. Now, the book, speaking of partying and Speaking of fraternity parties, you know, basically is what Xerxes does. Um, the book is not the most moral book, okay, in the Bible. It's probably not like the best bedtime reading for your kids. There, there's kind of some strange things that happen in the book, and I, I don't think that the book is, is presenting this just, you know, high mark of morality, but what it does do is it honors the Jewish people for their shrewdness while in exile. So it shows how these Jewish people show great shrewdness, great wisdom when they're in exile. And it shows how the providential care of God is with his people, even uh, as they're in this, as I said, very godless land. So those are the two points of the sermon today, the shrewdness of God's people and the providence of God. And there's a lot to think about in all of these. And again, we're covering a whole book, so we gotta get moving. So number one, the shrewdness of God's people. Now, shrewdness, shrewd, that's an interesting word. Even in our teaching meeting this week, um, you know, some of our guys that come, some of our staff was like, shrewdness, like, are, is that a good word? Like, is that, are we supposed to be shrewd? It kind of feels like, haha, I'm shrewd, I'm, I'm, I'm a conniver. And actually shrewdness, when, when rightly understood, is actually something that's commended in Scripture and commended throughout Scripture. It's commended here, but even by our Lord Jesus. You know, Luke 16, there's this very, very interesting story. It's the parable of the dishonest manager. If you go around and ask your friends, uh, what's your favorite parable of Jesus? They might say, you know, prodigal son. They might say good Samaritan. I guarantee you nobody says, oh man, I love the one about the dishonest manager, you know. 
It just doesn't come up. But, but, but what, basically what happens in this story is there's this very wealthy man and he's going to fire his manager. He's gonna fire this guy that manages his affairs. And so to curry favor, the guy's about to lose his job. So the manager, to curry favor with all the guys that this rich man was in business with, he kind of goes and makes these deals. And he basically says, well, you only owe the guy this. He, he basically gives them credit. He gives them discounts on what they owe this rich businessman. So he kind of, in a sense, you know, deceives the, the, the rich man. He kind of stabs the guy in the back. Yet at the end of the story, the rich man, the, the, the boss of the manager, commends him for being incredibly shrewd. It's a weird story because it's like, well, didn't he just kind of cheat the guy? But then he's commended. And then there's some moral advice in the story. It ends with this charge of you cannot serve God in money. Now, I'm not preaching Luke 16 today. That'll have to be for another day. But I think what's going on in Luke 16 and what's going on in Esther is actually pretty similar. It's not saying that all of the practices here are totally righteous and good, but there is something about being shrewd and being smart and not being stupid. (laughs) Now, I think what we see in the book is you understand the flow of the book and the characters in the book is there's a way to be smart or shrewd that honors the Lord. And there's a way to be smart or shrewd in a way that just only honors the self and only has the self in mind. If you're here a few years ago, I did this uh, sermon series called Decision Grid. Um, If y'all remember this, some of y'all may remember this. It was this two by two grid. And we looked at the book of Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs talks a lot. If you've read the book of Proverbs, it, it, it often juxtaposes these ideas. And it will say, the wicked are like this, but the righteous are like this. And it talks about them as if they're kind of characters. So it talks about the wickedness and righteousness. So that was one kind of axis of our, uh, of our grid here. But the book of Proverbs also talks about the righteous and the foolish, or I'm sorry, the, the wise and the foolish. So it talks about the, the righteous and the wicked, but it also talks about the foolish and the wise, or foolishness and wisdom. And, and actually, it's interesting, the beginning of both of these, the beginning of righteousness is what? The fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. They, they're both anchored in this place of knowing and fearing God. And if you were here a few years ago, and you can, I think that these sermons are online somewhere if you're interested in taking a deep dive in this. But we said that each of the quadrants, that, you know, each of these quadrants that are kind of created here, they can kind of represent characters. We even talked about what those characters might be like. What's interesting, I think this is actually a really helpful way to think about the book of Esther. Because the, the, the different quadrants actually represent, uh, in many ways, at least three uh, of these four main characters. So the first character we talked about in the Decision Grid series is the wicked fool. <laughs> Both foolish and wicked. Obviously, you don't want to be here. But, but Xerxes, if you read the book, he's basically depicted as both foolish. He's easily manipulated. He, again, he's drunk most of the time in the book. And he's wicked. He's very ruthless. He does kind of sketchy and weird things. The, the, whole, the whole story of Esther begins that Xerxes is throwing this big party and it's a party to himself and it's a party to his greatness. And he calls out his queen, Queen Vashti, who was a very beautiful woman. And what he wants her to do, I mean, just think how demeaning and, um, and just wicked this is. He, he basically wants her to parade 
and to flaunt herself in front of all the people at the party just to show the people of how beautiful his wife is. It's totally demeaning to her. It's totally disrespectful toward her. And Vashti, having, you know, being a self-respecting Persian woman, says no, doesn't do it. So he gets rid of her. Again, he's not a good guy. And he, and he ends up, and again, there's more to the story here, but he ends up marrying Esther, which is it's kind of an amazing story in itself, that this orphan Jewish woman becomes queen of Persia, but Esther becomes the queen, and as you would expect, Xerxes throws a, another big party and gets drunk again. Now, then Haman comes along. Haman is another interesting story. Now, what we see in Haman, he's this advisor to the king who is wicked, and he's out for himself, but he's very shrewd. And Haman, it's interesting about Haman. He, it says, the text says in chapter three that he is Haman the Agagite, which means he's descendant of Agag, who was one of the kings of the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites lived in the land of Canaan. They lived among the Jewish people. So what's interesting about Haman here is he's also an exile. He's also somebody that was taken away from his homeland, brought to this foreign place, and from this very low position, he's risen to power and risen to providence, uh, prominence. And that's taken a lot of shrewdness. That's taken a lot of wisdom. That's taken a lot of cunning on his behalf. And he's always putting himself in this kind of right position. And so we see in Haman, we actually see a lot of Wisdom, but of course we see in him a lot of evil too. Well, Haman becomes second in command and because he has this new title, he gets this big title at the beginning of the story. Because he has this big title, he wants everybody to bow down to him. You know, you can see the chip on his shoulder. He's this exile that's now become this big shot and he wants everybody to bow. Well, Mordecai, who's one of our other characters in the story, won't do it. He refuses to bow down to Haman and Haman hates him for it. And so Haman gets together with Xerxes and he, and he has this plan. Now he doesn't tell him who it is, but he says, King Xerxes, very shrewdly, very wisely, says there's this people among us and they don't have, like, they don't have customs like ours. And they, now keep in mind, Haman himself is in exile. And he's saying, they're not like us. They're different than us. He's totally identified with the Babylonians now. They're different than us. They have different practices than us. We should get rid of them. And in fact, King Xerxes, let's make a day. Let's make a decree that on this day, the Babylonians shall kill this foreign people. And if you kill one of them, if you kill one of the Jews, you can take their plunder and you can keep some of it for yourself and, you, and, and they will give some of it to you, O great king. Well, again, Xerxes who only pretty much cares about his power and his fame, says, man, I'm going to get rich. That sounds like a great plan to me. Let's do it. And so they make this decree. And they make the decree. They decide on the day by Haman throwing these dice. Now, this is going to come and be important. Remember I said that the holiday of Purim was established. Dice, the, the Hebrew word for dice, is the word pure, pure. And so they threw the pure, and they decided on this day. And... You guessed it. In behalf of this decree they had made, Xerxes decides to throw another party and they both get drunk together. So it's a lot of drinking in the book of Esther. Well, then you have Mordecai. Now there's Mordecai, again, he's, remember the, the passage that we read, chapter 10, verse three, he seemed to be a righteous and a good man in this. Why? Because he seeks the welfare of his people 
He seeks the welfare of God's people, but he's also very wise. Early on, he actually discovers a plot among some of Xerxes' guards to kill Xerxes. So there was two of Xerxes' guards that were going to kill him. Mordecai discovers the plot. He ends up telling Queen Esther, and the crisis is averted. And as we're going to see in a little bit, Mordecai gains favor with Xerxes because of this. But then, of course, there's also Esther. And Esther, too, the title character, ends up being used by God to save her people from this tragedy. If you remember the, there's a very, if you've ever read the book of Esther, there's this very famous kind of moment where Mordecai goes to convince Esther that you've got to do this. Anybody that would have questioned one of the edicts of the king would have been put to death. And so Esther's terrified to do this. But Mordecai says, look, we're all going to die anyway. You're a Jewish person. There's this edict out there that's going to put us all to death. And then if you've ever read the book of Esther, this most famous passage, Esther 414, Mordecai says to Esther, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe in God's providence, is what he's saying, that this all happened, that you became the queen of Persia in order to save the people of God. Now, what's so interesting about Esther is she also, in the way that she appeals to the King Xerxes, is very wise. She's very shrewd. First, she calls a fast among all the Jewish people, but then she throws these banquets. She throws these feasts, and she invites Haman, this official who, of course, orchestrated the whole thing, to also come to the feast. Now, I'm going to get into more of the details here, but the stage is set, and I think that this is a, a, a very helpful book. Again, we're going to talk about how we see God's providence in it, but it also shows how the people of God survived in exile how the people of God were shrewd and survived in exile. And I think there's actually a lot for us to learn in this as we think about life in Babylon. I think a lot of times Christians think that the way to righteousness, (laughs) the way to true righteousness is kind of reckless righteousness or what you might call foolish righteousness. Now, again, sometimes faithfulness, like we saw last week with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, sometimes faithfulness means you have to be willing to go to the fire. But it's not that we're out looking to go to the fire. You know, if Esther had come in to King Xerxes and says, Xerxes, this decree that you've made, it's a scandal. How dare you do this? How how dare you make a decree like this? She would have been put to death. And she certainly wouldn't have been commended. But the way that she went about appealing to him was very shrewd. It was very wise. Again, Christians feel odd about this idea of shrewdness, but it's actually something commended in the Bible, even by our own Lord. Matthew 10, there's this scene. Jesus is about to send his disciples out into the world, which is exactly what he's still doing. This is what we're talking about. He's sending his disciples out to go minister on his behalf, And he's sending them out into a world that he knows, he knows is is going to reject what they have to say. He knows is going to be against what they have to say. And so he says in Matthew 10, 16, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. It's going to be dangerous. The world is going to hate you. What does he say? Therefore, be shrewd, be as shrewd as snakes, but as innocent as doves. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Be be innocent, be righteous. Don't don't let your shrewdness sear your conscience. And I want to talk about that. 
But as you live out righteousness, as you live out faith, be wise, be shrewd, be smart in how you do this. Now, the question we have to ask is, how do we stay in this quadrant, right? Because I think oftentimes if we start operating in this shrewd way, it can become self-serving. We can sear our conscience and we can end up manipulating people for our own good. At the same time, we obviously want to be righteous, but, but how do we pursue that without maybe falling over here into this way that might not be wise or foolish? A couple of diagnostic questions. The first one is, am I pursuing righteousness, real God-honoring righteousness, or just self-righteousness? It's interesting how many times Jesus warns against pursuing a kind of righteousness that you're only pursuing in order to be seen, in order to be seen by others. I think a lot of times we can confuse this quadrant over here, and it's less about righteousness, and it's more about just being seen as a righteous person. That gets to the second diagnostic question. Am I pursuing wise courage or just victimhood? (laughs) We kind of live in a world that honors victimhood. People like to be the victim. I know that sounds weird, but that's the age that we're in. People like to say, this is how hard I've had it. This is how hard it's been on me. Woe is me. And of course, we live in a complex age. And of course, we live in an age where Christian comfort is going to be challenged. But but I want to push back on you on this one a little bit. You know, I hear even Christians in our context of the city of Atlanta talking about Christian persecution, which to talk about the environment that we live in here in a place like Atlanta as an as a place where persecution is happening is really disrespectful to our brothers and sisters around the world who are actually being persecuted for their faith. No one here is being ripped out of your home and beaten to death because of your faith in Jesus. You may be seen as strange or weird in your company, and there may be some complex situations that you have to face, and I'm not making light of any of those. In fact, that's why we're doing this series But nobody's here being chased down by their families, facing the threat of death, like so many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Let's be careful with this. I think so often we can desire a kind of victimhood, which again is really just a kind of self-righteousness that really is neither righteous nor wise. Another diagnostic question is this, and this I think will keep us from sliding down into this quadrant, is the purpose of my shrewdness here, my being wise and smart for God's sake and for the sake of God's people or just for the sake of self? Again, this is a complex, this is a nuanced conversation. I do believe that we, we can become wise in our own eyes. I think that we can be self-deceived. I think it's very easy to sear the conscience and so I think we should ask ourselves this question. Is this just about me? Am I, am I using my wisdom to deceive or to, to lift myself up? Or am I really trying to be wise on behalf of God and his people? Which is, of course, why Esther and Mordecai are commended. And that gets to the final question here. And I think this is really a great question to ask. Am I working out 
this in community? Am I working out righteousness and wisdom in community? I think sometimes it's hard to know what is the wise way forward. I think sometimes it it can be challenging to know what does righteousness say in this situation? And that's why we need one another. Again, there's a warning, 1 Corinthians 3.18, do not be self-deceived. And, and then it, it warns against the wisdom of the world, against the verses, or rather than the wisdom of God. Related to that last question, I think kind of another diagnostic question is the way that I'm behaving causing me to be more and more vulnerable before the people of God or more and more hidden before the people of God. And of course, we should always be working toward a vulnerability and openness before our brothers and sisters in the Lord. So Esther can teach us a lot about shrewdness. It's a great book to read and to study and to think deeply about as we think about life in Babylon. But it also teaches us, and I wanna spend the rest of our time here, it also teaches us about the providence of God. Let me, we gotta finish the story here. The book begins, I just wanna walk through the flow of the book here. It's fascinating if you think about it. The book begins with this feast to Xerxes. God is not mentioned. He's far away. Xerxes is behaving badly. Then, of course, the evil Haman comes to power. Now, remember, I'm not going to mention this, but somewhere in here, Mordecai finds out this plot against Xerxes. And he is shrewd and he is wise to bubble this up to Queen Esther. Of course, in there too, Esther becomes queen. But but things are getting bad for the Jewish people. Xerxes is in power. Haman comes to power. Haman plots to kill all of the Jews as he rolls the dice, as he rolls the pure. And then at another point, Haman sees Mordecai, the one who won't bow to him. And he's so angry at Mordecai. He hates Mordecai so much that he builds these gallows. Now, if you've seen your Bible, it says the word gallows. I actually did some study on this. Uh, it's the, the word maybe is translated gallows, but the way that it's understood, if, as we think of gallows, there's hanging, there's noose. But actually, what scholars believe, these Persian gallows, it was basically a tall spike that they would put in the ground and literally, they would really take someone's body and just pierce them on it out in front of the public for people to see. A very gruesome way to die. This is how much Haman hates Mordecai. (laughs) He has prepared this gallows for him to just be speared through in public to totally humiliate him for people to see. Okay, so chapter six is where the whole book kind of turns. Esther has just thrown this first feast. Remember, she throws the feast. She invites Haman. The king says to her, what can I do for you, dear Esther, Queen Esther? And she says, well, just come to this feast tomorrow. Come to this next feast. Well, that night, Xerxes cannot sleep. And like all of us, you know, when he can't sleep, he has the chronicles of his kingdom opened up and read to him. And somebody's reading the chronicles of his kingdom to him. And as they're reading, they come across this story about the time when Mordecai saved his life. He said, there was a servant Mordecai who saved your life from being killed. And as as Xerxes is hearing this, he says, we never did anything to honor Mordecai. We never did anything because he saved my life. We should have done something to honor him. We, We let this slip by us. Well, just in this very moment, just in this very moment, it just so happens that Haman is coming by the king's palace. So that's where we pick up. Turn, if you have your Bibles, turn to Esther 6.4. I love this part of the, the story here. So the king is thinking, what can we do to honor Mordecai? 
It says, now Haman had just entered, Esther 6.4, the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he'd prepared for him. So Haman's just prepared these gallows and he's now trying to get Mordecai in trouble. So Haman comes to the outer court and the king's young men told him, Haman, your advisor, is here. So the king has just said, we need to honor Mordecai. The young people say, well, what do you know? Haman just got here. He'll have some good advice. Haman is here standing in the court. Oh, and the king says, oh, good. Bring Haman in. Again, Xerxes is drunk. Basically every scene. Xerxes is not sober the entire book of Esther. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done? What should be done, Haman, to the man that the, Lord, that the king delights to honor? Now, Haman, again, he's shrewd, he's wise, but he's always thinking about himself. He has the kind of shrewdness that is totally self-motivated. And so Haman says to himself, well, whom would the king want to honor? Who would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, well, for the man that the king delights to honor, let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. I want to be as powerful as you, is what he's saying. Let the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head the royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble officials and let them dress the man who the king delights to honor and let them lead on the horse through the square of the city, this man proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to whom the king delights to honor." And it's as if the king, you know, it's as if Xerxes is just listening to this and he says, hey man, I knew I could count on you. you know, what a great idea. The king then said to Haman, great idea, hurry, take the robes and the horse, just as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. So this is, the whole, this is the whole story turns here. If you've read the book of Esther, it's an amazing, we're gonna look at this just a little bit. The whole story flips over in this one little moment. Middle of the night, king can't sleep, has the records read to him. He remembers this thing Mordecai done. Haman comes in with this great plan. And so sure enough, the noble official that the king chooses to honor the servant that the king delights in is Haman, who he leads, he has to lead Mordecai around on this horse through the city and saying, this is the one that the king delights in. Well, of course, Haman, he couldn't be more angry and ashamed and upset. But just right after this, things go from bad to worse. So that's that day, they led around in the city. And then that night, the big banquet. And it, I could just see Haman saying, well, at least I'm going to the banquet. <laughs> at least I can rid myself of this shame by going to the banquet that Esther, the queen, and the king are throwing for me. So they get to the banquet. Remember Esther, this is the second banquet that she's thrown to the king. They get to the banquet and, and Xerxes, you know, he's probably had a couple of drinks by this point. He's saying, what is your wish, Queen Esther? What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. Just tell me what you want, Esther. Even half the kingdom. If you have your Bibles, turn to 7-2. He says, even half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And 7-3, this is the key moment. Then Queen Esther answers, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, here's what I really want. <laughs> Let my life be granted to me for my wish. 
and the life of my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we've been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, says to Esther, well, how has this happened, right? Well, of course, he, <laughs> he d- delivered the decree. Of course, he's forgotten about that. How has this happened? Who is it? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And of course, Haman is there at the banquet. And Esther says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Well, sure enough, Xerxes is furious. And amazingly, (laughs) Haman is taken out and immediately put to death on the very gallows that he had just built to kill Mordecai. And the whole thing turns. Now, of course, there was still the problem with the decree. Persian law said that a a king could not reverse a decree once it had been made. Well, Esther says, I've got a wise uncle. So Mordecai comes and they figure out a counter decree, basically saying that the Jews on the day of the dice, the day of pure, could defend themselves. And that's what happens. Uh, the king is so amazed by Mordecai's wisdom that he basically gives him Haman's job. And then on this day where all the Jews were supposed to die, the Jews are able to defend themselves and just a few people came after them, but they, the, the, the text ends by saying the Jews got rest from all of their enemies. They got rest from all their enemies. They were able to destroy the people that desired to hate them. They were able to live in peace. It's an amazing book. It's a great book for Christians to read. First of all, it teaches us a lot about being shrewd, but just look at the pattern of the book. You go, everything, at the first part of the book, everything's going downhill. The Feast of Xerxes, Haman comes to power, Haman plots to kill the Jews, and then you have this turn. Haman is honored. Haman is honored right here in the middle of the book, and Esther exposes or sorry, Mordecai is honored and Esther exposes Haman's plan. And then everything turns. Haman is killed on the very gallows that he had made to kill Mordecai. Mordecai undoes the plot. So the same plot that Haman had done here gets undone by Mordecai. And then Mordecai is brought to power, taking the same job that Haman had here at the top. And the book ends with a feast, but this time it's a feast to the Lord. This is the first Purim, a feast showing that God cares for his people. This day of the dice, right? This day of the dice, which was gonna be a day of death for them, ended up being a day of celebration for them. A couple of practical thoughts, and then one more thing. First of all, I want you to hear from this. God is at work in the mess of human history. God is at work in the mess of human history. When things seem really bad, God is at work in the mess of human history. I want you to hear that. You know, you know, Esther is the only book that the name of Yahweh, the name of God, is not mentioned in, in the whole Bible. Yet you see it, and I see it. God is at work here in, through the most evil people, in the most evil events. I want you to hear that. Sometimes when we see evil all around us, of course we mourn. I'm not saying that we shouldn't mourn in the face of evil. 
course we mourn. We see evil people, we see evil deeds. But don't doubt that God is at work. It'd be very easy to say, where is God? Where is God? He's working in the most hidden places, in the most amazing ways. God is at work in all of human history. Don't doubt this in this secular age, but look to see the hand of God at work. Number two, and I want you to hear this, trust in the providence of God, even when it's hard to see. As I just mentioned, Esther is the only book where the name of the Lord is not mentioned, but I think this is a clue. It's a design. Yes, God's name is not mentioned, but but can't you see him? (laughs) Can't you see him? Can't you see him all through the book? Can't you see him in the fact that this was the page of the Chronicles that was read? Can't you see him in the fact that Haman just happened to be there that night? Can't you see him in the fact that Esther, this orphan Jewish woman, becomes the queen of Persia? Even when God is hard to see, he is at work. It's a great book for us to study. I mean, I challenge you to go back and read the whole book. It's, it's a great book if you want to think about how to live in exile, how to live in Babylon. The one, I got a couple thoughts here as we, as we close. The one who is evil in the story, hear this, the one who is evil gets condemned by the very trap that he set up to condemn God's servant. And then the second thing I want you to see in this is the day that was supposed to mean death to Israel ended up being a holiday. (laughs) A holiday where they celebrated blessing and life. Now, I'm gonna guess most of you have not celebrated the holiday of Purim. Maybe some of you have. And guess though, it's not a big part of your life. But I'm gonna guess that most of you have celebrated Good Friday and Easter. <laughs> Christians should be really good at seeing this. It's the very center of our faith. What is Good Friday? Well, it's this day when the evil one, Satan himself, thought he had the trap set. <laughs> he was going to put God to death. And the unthinkable happened. Jesus died. The son of God actually was put to death. But don't you see? The the very trap that Satan thought he had set is the very thing that trapped him. In that death, sin lost all of its power. In that death and then the following resurrection, death lost all of its power and sting. The very trap that Satan tried to set ended up being the trap that undid him. The, The... the evil one who had set this trap to to try to condemn God's servant, he ended up being trapped himself by it. And the day of death, this dark day, this day where Jesus died, you know, we we call it Good Friday. The day that we celebrate that in Christ, death has been put to death. That in Christ, there is forgiveness. In Christ, there's hope. In Christ, all of the messy things of this world can be made right and new and whole. Don't you see how Jesus works? I want you to hear this. What is like this? You know, there's a lot of worldviews. There's a lot of religions that can make sense of good, the good things. But, and Jesus does that. But Jesus comes in and he makes sense of the horrible things, 
of the hard things, of the painful things. Those end up being the places where God shows up in the most profound way. It's the way God has always worked. It's the way he still works. It's the way he's working now. You know, we're going to end this service, as you see here, with baptisms. And I don't know what the baptism testimonies are going to say. I don't, I don't know. I haven't heard them. But I, I'm going to guess they're going to say something like, there was something hard in my life that happened. There was something really bad in my life that happened. And God showed up. And I saw the beauty of his forgiveness. I came to grips with how big of a sinner I was. And that's when the gospel came alive to me. I realized how ruined I was in my self-righteousness. And that's when the love and forgiveness of Jesus was was what I realized was everything I could ever need and and, and want and desire. Don't you see how Jesus is? (laughs) And won't you trust him? I, I don't know what mess you're in right now. You may be saying, where is God? Where is God? It may be the, the very mess that you're in that God is going to use in your life to show himself to you in the most profound way. I pray that you find him. I pray that you see him. And I pray that you can trust him. Let's pray. Father, help us to see. Give us eyes to see. Help us to see how you work, Lord, even in in a difficult time, in, in what can seem, Lord, like dark days and in and, 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 and tough situations, Lord. I pray that we would see that those are kind of the very times, even, when, even sometimes when you're not named, even by people that seem very far from you, you work in the most profound and beautiful ways. Give us eyes to see that, Lord. Give us hearts to believe that. Help us to see that this is the very center of our faith, that death died, sin died, the power of sin died in the death of Christ. What seemed to be the worst thing that could have ever happened has created the greatest thing that could have ever happened, that sin and death has now, in the death of Jesus, lost its power, that Satan and all evil with him was trapped in the very trap that they thought they had set. Give us eyes to see this, Lord. May our faith rise. Thank you for this little story of Esther. I pray that we would be a a wise people and a righteous people. And I pray, Father, that in all things, even when you're hard for us to see, we would trust your providence. May be true in our lives, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name.